0: Welcome to Sabbath School, brought to you by It Is Written. We're glad that you could join us again this week as we are continuing our study of the book of Ephesians. This week, we are on lesson number 10, Husbands and Wives Together at the Cross. A very interesting subject that we're going to be looking at this week, and we're glad that you could journey through it with us. Let's begin with prayer. Father, we thank you for being with us along our study of the book of Ephesians. And as we are looking at a very interesting subject today, we ask that you'll bless us with a greater and deeper understanding of it and an understanding of you and your plan for our lives. We ask that you'll bless our time together this week. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're grateful to be back again this week with the author of the Sabbath School Lesson, Dr. John McVeigh. He's the president of Walla Walla University. John, welcome back. Delighted to be with you, Eric. So this has been a bit of a journey. And it's yes, almost it almost over, not over yet. Not over yet. But we're getting closer. Lesson number ten, and this one is husbands and wives together at the cross. So Paul's going to get into some some interesting things here uh, this week, some things that are misunderstood, and we're going to try to unmisunderstand them <laughs> as it were. sure. but uh, but what is Paul talking about here this week in Ephesians chapter five? There's this section verses 21 through 33 that Paul delves into something, some interesting subjects here. What's this about? Yes, he does.
1: Chapter 5, verses 21 through 33 is, is Paul's counsel to Christian wives first, and then he spends spills most of his ink on counsel, Eric, to, to Christian husbands. All right, So he's talking about wives and then husbands. This is part of a bit broader passage that we'll We'll study the the two additional sets of relationships next week, uh, but the first first set of relationships that he deals with in in what we could call rules for the Christian household, wives, husbands, then he moves to children, parents, and then finally he moves, and this is the most challenging one of all, isn't it? He moves to slaves and slave masters. And that's where we really get a kind of catch in our throat here to realize that if if you and I were sitting in a Christian house church someplace in greater Ephesus and we were looking around the circle and we understood the, uh, the customs and, and, and morals of the time, we would be able to look around and based upon how people were dressed, we'd be able to say, she's a slave, he's a slave, oh, that's the slave master, and, and so on. And it's a little daunting, isn't it, to think about sitting in that circle and looking out and participating in a Christian worship service and realizing that they're in that circle of wonderful people at that house church are both slaves and slave masters. So with that context in
0: mind, help us understand this this household code sure. that Paul is is introdu he's introducing us to it. Right. It would have been a little more familiar back then to his to his readers, but we're we're very strain very much strangers to what's sure. going on here. Help us understand It's this. actually
1: Martin Luther that put the the German term to this, Toffel, or household code, house code. And so it's rules for the Christian household, or a little more technically, a household code. And it harks back, clear back to the fourth century before Christ, to a guy that you'll, that met before, (laughs) Aristotle. And Aristotle argues that three sets of relationships are at the very foundation of human society. And guess what those relationships are? Probably the marriage. Paul's talking about here. (laughs) Marriage. Parents, children, and slave, slave masters, slaves. Uh, and and this, this kind of caught on as a way of talking about households. And we also have to think about the first century and what household meant. Because you and I, when we think household, we think Western nuclear family. Mom and dad and 2.3 kids, right? I mean, that's what we think of. Uh, but in the first century context, household was broader than that. It include, included the master and his wife and his children, but it also included slaves, and it included uh, clients and patrons and even customers. So it's a, a broader understanding of what household meant in the first century rather than the, necessarily our nuclear family today. And so Paul is, is uh, trying to reflect with those early believers on the relationships as they were structured in the Greco-Roman society of the first century, and he's trying to fill those husks of relationships, thinking particularly of slavery, fill those husks with the values of the gospel somehow and to see a transformation happening because they are modeling their behavior on Jesus.
0: And if Paul is... Talking about this household code, if he's bringing it up, if he's spending this much room in his letter talking about mm-hmm. the household code, it would stand to reason that there were some differing views of what a household code would look like back in those days. How how is his view very different from others?
1: Well, it's a it's a really good question. Um, we can we can turn. There's lots lots of ancient authors deal with this topic of. Uh, household relationships and so with a little bit of work we can set Paul's counsel here and then set alongside it some of these other documents and we tend to read Paul's counsel as kind of archaic and out of step with our times and it feels really old-fashioned. Does it feel the same when you set it alongside counsel from back then is is a good and active question, isn't it? There's one document that I like to go to because it the the difference is pretty stark. It's actually a Jewish document called Searock, and Sea dates to about the early second century before Christ so here's a sample of the kind of council that was more or less common in the time of paul still this this document and others were well known and other writers contemporary with paul were were treating this in similar ways they're basically. And the others who write on this are basically interested in one thing, and that is the husband, father, slave masters, honor, and reputation. And he needs to structure his relationships so that his ego gets stroked, his reputation is built. That's what the other advice is about. So let me give you a sample here from uh, C-Rock. About wives and husbands, do you have a wife who pleases you? Do not divorce her, but do not trust yourself to one whom you detest. That's cheerful marriage counsel, right? That's probably not what you're going
0: to hear in, in many counseling sessions today. I,
1: I, I hope not. It, it advises fathers concerning the treatment of the of a son this way. He who loves his son will whip him often. Pamper a child and he will terrorize you. Play with him and he will grieve you. Discipline your son and make his yoke heavy, so that you may not be offended by his shamelessness. That's uh, again, a very spare the rod counsel. and spoil the child to an extreme. Yeah, yeah, this right? is on steroids. <laughs> this is on steroids. And what about that slavery uh, relationship? Fodder and a stick and burdens for a donkey, bread and discipline and work for a slave. Yoke and thong will bow the neck of an ox, and for a wicked slave. There are racks and tortures. So now set that kind of counsel, which is more or less characteristic of the time, against Paul's, and Paul starts to sing and shine, doesn't it? For one thing, they never address the uh, the subjugated partner, and yet Paul addresses that individual first: the wife first, the children first, the slave first. Isn't that interesting? So it's it's almost turning things on its head or and if you watch what he does here just as we saw in his counsel to wives and husbands he's spilling most of his ink and most of his attention on limiting the power of the husband the father and the slave master by asking that person to model his behavior on the behavior of christ
0: all right so we've got a, a very different view the viewpoint than the rest of the world what is a common view of some of these passages that we're looking at right now compared to maybe what we're seeing in it sure. as perhaps a little different than what you'll typically hear uh, Christian commentators or, or others uh, saying about these passages?
1: Well, sometimes particularly in, in, in an academic context, this passage, speaking of chapter 5, 21 through 33, but also the household code as a whole, gets dismissed as a child of its time, as uh, ha- holding no real value or, or truth for us to think about today uh, because it's simply, it's simply Paul trying to conform Christian behavior to what is expected in the wider world. Now, there's, a, there's others, though, who take the perspective I'm advocating here that, in fact, if you study this passage carefully, the household code carefully, Paul is actually going out of his way to critique the patterns of patriarchal authority and behavior that were expected in the time, and he's bounding them and constraining them by the example of Jesus.
0: Very interesting. Very interesting. Now, this uh, metaphor, Paul develops a marriage metaphor for the relationship between Christ and his church. What are some of the elements of this metaphor? We we see that in his writings, and we see some of it happening here.
1: You know, get ready. This is this is for me just really really beautiful. So, he he verses twenty two through twenty four. He has a a short section advising Christian wives about their relationships with their husbands, and then he has this this much longer section verses twenty five through thirty three, where he advises Christian husbands. What's interesting here is he gets a little caught up in his sermon illustration. Have you ever preached a sermon and you just you, you wanted to find a place for that really good story? And sometimes the story can sort of take over the sermon. It has a little bit of that sense here. Paul wants to use the relationship between Christ and his church as an example for Christian husbands. Uh, but in verses twenty-five through twenty-seven and, and verse twenty-nine, he focuses on that to such an extent that it, it kind of threatens to take over the passage, Eric, to, to become the whole thing. But in the midst of this is, is really a, a, a fascinating way that he goes about unpacking this metaphor. So here's the, here's the short story, and then let's watch him do it. He's going to take all of the roles and customs that were part of the ancient wedding and marriage, and he's going to apply those things to Jesus. So look at what he does here in verse 25 and following. Jesus becomes the bride price. We're operating here in a time in which, in which the groom had to pay and pay rather handsomely for the bride. This is a time when the, the village economies were based on the exchanges of gifts that happened at the time of, of weddings. And, and so Jesus Christ gives himself up for her, which I take to be Paul's way of saying Jesus is himself the bride price. That's a huge price. That is a huge price. That is a huge he, he price. He gives himself up for, for her. And, and as, you, as you continue on here, you will see that there are of, many other elements of this, of this ancient wedding that, that Paul highlights and, and brings into focus Thinking about Jesus, so uh, the the next element of the ancient wedding ceremony that he comes to here is uh, that Christ bathes his bride. Verse twenty six. So in preparation for the wedding, Christ prepares her and bathes her. Now that's great theology, but that's really rotten uh, marriage etiquette, either t- in either ancient times or modern times. But Paul is Paul is producing. Great theology by taking every aspect of the wedding ceremony and wedding customs of the time and applying it to Jesus. Look at the third thing that that he does. Christ speaks, again, verse 26, the word of promise. So Christ is the one who speaks the word of promise, probably in the betrothal ceremony, which was part of the ancient wedding. And he, prom- he commits himself to the bride. Number four, Christ presents the bride to himself, verse 27, presents the bride to himself. Uh, I'll come back to that because, well, let's let's go ahead and talk about it right now because in that presentation really is embedded a beautiful picture of the second coming of Jesus. So at the second coming, he presents the bride to himself. Now, again, poor, poor wedding planning. Uh, in ancient times, not so different from today, uh, the bride would have been given away by a best man, best men, or her father, right? Those would probably work quite nicely in our context today. But the, the groom would never present the bride to himself. I haven't seen a wedding where I haven't that happens seen yet. that. This is a strange, strange wedding in some, some respects. Uh, so, and, and finally, Christ dresses and adorns his bride, verse 27, prepares her for the wedding prepares her for that grand wedding at at his return. So all of this together uh, yields a powerful, uh, emotion-laden, inspiring theme uh, as we watch Paul concentrate the elements and roles of the ancient wedding in Christ. And it simply is this. Jesus is everything to his church. Jesus is everything to her. And and that's a wonderful idea and theme that we watch him very skillfully and artistically playing out here.
0: A beautiful picture that that Paul is giving us here of of the relationship between Christ and his church. And we're going to delve more deeply into this passage in just a moment. I want to encourage you if you haven't done so yet, please do pick up the companion book to this quarter's Sabbath school lesson. You will be blessed as there is more information Uh, more stories, more depth into everything that we are covering. Where can you find it? You can find it very easily at itiswritten.shop. Just look for the book called Ephesians by John McVeigh at itiswritten.shop. In just a moment, we're going to come back as we continue looking at this incredible passage in Chapter 5 of Ephesians. We'll be right back.
2: It was given as a gift by the wise men to the newborn Christ. Later, an entire city named after the precious perfume would feature prominently in the book of Revelation. While exiled on Patmos, John writes to a young church of Christian believers in Smyrna to encourage them as they prepare to endure fierce persecution at the hands of a Roman emperor. In a foreshadowing of what awaits God's people in the last days, The Apostle shares Christ's message of hope. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The Seven Churches of Revelation, Smyrna. Discover how Jesus can turn your trials into victories. The Seven Churches of Revelation, Smyrna. Brought to you by It Is Written TV. You know that at It Is Written we are serious about studying the Word of God, and we encourage you to be serious as well. Well, here's what you do if you want to dig deeper into God's Word. Go to itiswritten.study for the It Is Written Bible Study guides online. 25 in-depth Bible studies that will take you through the major teachings of the Bible. You'll be blessed, and it's something you'll want to tell others about as well. itiswritten.study. Go further. itiswritten.study.
0: Welcome back to Sabbath School brought to you by It Is Written. We're continuing our study of lesson number 10, looking at husbands and wives together at the cross. So, John, we've looked at a very interesting metaphor that Paul gives us of, of a wedding and the role that the bride and the groom are, pray, are playing together. But uh, as you mentioned, Paul talks about wives first and then husbands uh, in, this, in this passage that he's sharing here with us. In what way is Christ supposed to be the example for the Christian wives as well? We see how he's supposed to be for the husbands. What about sure. the wives? Where do we see there?
1: My argument would be that, that Christ is the ultimate example for both. And as we start uh, the, the passage, chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, or 21 through 33, we sh- we should note that verse 21 is a hinge verse between what goes before and our passage of counsel to wives and husbands. Uh, we know that because verse 22 has no verb in it. So wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord actually borrows from the verb in verse 21, which talks about members of the church submitting to one another. Okay, And then Paul is going to unpack that, giving some examples of how he imagines that submission uh, occurring. Uh, So it says, Wives, submit your husbands as to the Lord. And that little phrase is is a bit tricky for us because we can tend to read the verse as though it were saying, Wives, submit yourselves to your husband as though he were Christ. Put, Put your husband in the place of Christ. And that somehow feels a little challenging to us, and it should, I think. Fortunately, uh, we, we have a, a parallel passage in uh, Colossians chapter 3 verse 18. Uh, so turning over a couple of books to, to Colossians, Colossians also has one of these household codes. And in fact, something we haven't mentioned to, to this point. Uh, Colossians and Ephesians, have a very close literary relationship with each other. They're covering much the same thing, kind of written on the same outline. Ephesians adds a lot about the church, uh, and it's, there's an argument about which came first. But what's clear is that they're they're closely they're closely related. And so notice how Paul puts it in chapter three, verse eighteen of Colossians: Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. And so it's it's worth thinking carefully about this. Uh, does Paul mean that a wife is to, is to submit to her husband as though he were Christ? Or does he mean that Christ is the truest and highest focus of her devotions? And I would argue that it's the latter. And it coheres with a, a, a wonderful statement that's included in Friday's lesson from a book called The Adventist Home. There is one who stands higher than the husband to the wife. It is her redeemer, and her submission to her husband is to be rendered as God has directed, as is fit in the Lord. And so we should probably take that phrase as a signal that there is an even higher, more important, ultimate relationship for the wife than her relationship with the husband.
0: So clearer insights here by comparing, and this is just good Bible study, comparing yes. Ephesians with Colossians and not reading too much into something that might be, well, misunderstood, which unfortunately many people seem to misunderstand there. you know, As we're looking here in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul makes a reference to, uh, to the book of Genesis. And how does this, this reference that he makes to the book of Genesis feed into what we're looking at this week?
1: Uh, it seems to me that, that Paul is going somewhere with his rhetoric in this passage. So he starts out using submission language and so on, but, but he's headed somewhere. And where he is headed is a quotation or a citation of Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. As he gives it there, in verse 31, it reads like this. Therefore, breaking into the creation story, right? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. So who is it that leaves? The man. The man, interestingly enough. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become... One, flesh. Now, what's fascinating is that there, if, if you read the creation story, there is a verse readily at hand that he could have used to underline the idea of the submission of the wife to her husband, right? And, and that's, that's in chapter 3, verse 16. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, that statement comes after the fall. It interests me that Paul chooses... A word of marriage advice, if you will, echoing from Eden before the fall. Do you see that? And so he's holding up this one-flesh model of marriage, and he's working through it. Along the way, he's kind of teasing husbands by saying, you don't beat up on yourself, do you? And you're supposed to say, no, I don't. Right? right? <laughs> that would be a, a strange form of sadism or mechanism. Macros- sure, yeah. It, it, it would be a bad thing. And, and he, he says, you're not going to beat up on yourself. And you're one with your wife. So don't, why would you mistreat her or beat up on her? To beat up on her is to beat up on yourself because you are, 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 are one. Uh, interesting argumentation. And so then he comes to this culmination of his argument in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and puts forward the one-flesh model of marriage. Uh, we have a, a, a number of models of marriage that float around today, but I wonder if we took this one flesh model seriously. What 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 advice it would have for us? It, it would
0: look a whole lot different.
1: The other models tend to uh, pit the husband over against the wife, vice versa. How how you know? But a one flesh model says, "Who are they together? What could they do and accomplish together?" And I rather like the enrichment that that one flesh model that Paul puts forward brings to the marriage relationship. So one might say, well, sure, that's all great in
0: theory. In a perfect world, we'd be one and husbands and wives would get along and everything would be uh, rose petals and rainbows and, and everything would be great. What about in the real world where maybe things are a little bit imperfect?
1: Oh, it's a great question it, it, because the, the passage can, rain a, can raise a picture of white picket fences and neatly mowed lawns and 2.3 children, right? Uh, But I think there are many hints in our passage that Paul understands that Christian marriages can be less than ideal. He seems to be addressing husbands who are inclined to abuse their wives and and warning them from it. Uh, Chapter 5, verses 3 to 11, looking back a little bit, the temptation of immorality and sexual, sexual immorality and disloyalty in one's marriage from a sexual standpoint seems close at hand, and all of that. If we can go back still further to a wonderful passage, chapter 3, verse 14, there's a little wordplay that's important. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, pater in Greek, from whom every family, patria, in heaven and on earth is named. And so Paul in that passage lays claim on behalf of the Father, his Son, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, lays claim to every family, imperfect though they may be. Uh, they are the subjects of God's forgiveness and God's grace. Uh, he's drawing your family into his grand plan to unify all things in Christ. And he imagines your family and mine, and every imperfect family on our planet as united in Christ and part of that grand plan. So this is not about perfect families with no issues and no problems. This is about an invasion of God's grace into real lives and real families.
0: And just imagine what, what the Christian world, what the whole world could be like if each family would allow him to be a part of it. Imagine what your family could be like. Imagine what your neighbors, your friends' families could be like. Imagine what every person could be like if Christ lived and reigned in the heart. Well, that's a picture that we're seeing here of what Paul's desire and hope is through the grace and power and strength of Jesus Christ. And we're continuing to see more of that as Paul leads us through the book of Ephesians We're looking forward to seeing you again next week as we continue this journey. Until then, may God bless you and we'll see you again next time on Sabbath School brought to you by It Is Written.